0: And there's an attitude of let's move forward, which is a very human attitude. It's very understandable, but it's also um, often not reckoning with the past. And, And the past doesn't go away in Brazil or anywhere else.
1: Hello, friends. It's Alfred Bunga Bunga. The date is Thursday, the 20th of August. My name is Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. Hi, guys. Hey. Yo. And this episode is produced by myself. And for that reason, I'm going to be introducing the topic. Uh, This week, we're talking about modernism and postmodernism, about national cultures and cultural diffusion across borders, and about global wokeness. To do that, we're exceptionally happy to have this year's Pulitzer Prize winner, Benjamin Moser, uh, join us, who's going to join us on the line in just a second. Uh, Benjamin won the prize for his biography of Susan Sontag, Sontag, Her Life and Work, which came out at the end of last year. He's also written a biography of the Brazilian author, Clarice Lispector. Uh, for me, though, how I came to know Benjamin's work uh, was through a book he wrote that actually only came out in Brazil, but really uh, would merit translation into English. Um, it's a book called Autoimperialismo, a book of three short essays about Brazil's imperialist attitude towards itself. So that's where we're going to start today. We're going to start with Brazil and Brazilian modernism and Auto Imperialismo, self-imperialism. Then we'll move on to Sontag as a way of discussing a number of themes regarding the image, representation, as well as globalized wokeness. It's
2: quite, it's, it's quite a lot, but um, I it's think we've lot. got the right person to, to yeah. talk to. Um, yeah, auto imperialism and Sontag with, I think, our second Pulitzer Prize winner after Glenn Greenwald. So, yeah, looking forward to it.
1: These things are transitive as well, right? You know, if what? you have enough, if you if you talk to enough Pulitzer Prize winners, it kind of, <laughs> you, you end up absorbing them yourselves.
3: Uh, I can't imagine, uh, sorry to disappoint you, Alex, I can't imagine ABB ever winning a Pulitzer Prize.
1: Sad news, fake news, actually. Uh, <laughs>
3: I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to Benjamin too, um, particularly about, uh, I mean, I'm very curious to hear, I don't know much about his views on Brazil. So I'm very curious to hear about them. Um, but I'm also very interested. I'm interested in Susan Sontag for um, cause I think she's such a pivotal figure in terms of, uh, the eighties and the post cold War period in particular, and she kind of straddles that whole era. And so I'm very curious to talk to Benjamin to hear what he has to say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground. Uh, hopefully, Benjamin will uh, will guide us through this, uh, as I'm sure he will. So let's call him up now. Okay, hello. Uh, welcome. We're delighted to have Benjamin Moser with us, and uh, I'm so happy to be speaking to you, Benjamin. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, no. So uh, the way uh, this is going to run has already been uh, explained to listeners uh, just before we've started speaking. So we're just going to dive right in. Um We're going to start with Brazil, of course, and Brazil and modernism as a way of moving towards uh, near to our times. So to start off with... uh you note in uh, your excellent uh, autoimperialismo, um, which sadly doesn't exist in English, uh, self-imperialism, I guess, would be the, the translation, uh, that you know that Brazil is Latin American and yet quite different from the rest of Latin America. And indeed, Brazilians don't tend to see themselves uh, in the same light as, as the rest of Latin America. They don't see themselves as Latin American necessarily. There's a definitely a sort of tussle there. Um, and part of the reason is that it's not a former common uh, that's now been liberated, you know, in the, in, as in the case of, you know, Colombia or whatever, anywhere else in, in the rest of South America, but actually an empire itself, um, which then became a republic. And so what you have is a sort of c- this continuation of, uh, of a sort of imperial attitude um, of, of auto imperialism. So maybe to start off with, can you maybe explain uh, what you meant by auto imperialism or self imperialism?
0: Well, it's an interesting question because it was something that I never understood when I was in Brazil, which was a lot and for many years. And there's a kind of attitude that Brazil has that it is indeed a Latin American country in certain received areas. I would say their attitude toward the United States is very um, defensive in a way that you would hear in a place like Nicaragua, except that Brazil is half of South America. It's a huge country. It hasn't ever really been militarily threatened since the mid 19th century. And even then I'm referring to the Paraguayan war. You know, Paraguay was a tiny little country and Brazil was allied with a very big country, Argentina and another small country, Uruguay in this war. So actually Brazil has this fascinating history of peace. In fact, it also has more international borders than almost any country in the world. I think it has 10 or 11 different countries that it touches. And, um, and somehow Brazil has always managed to be peaceful externally, um, in, in part credit to, to luck and in part credit to a very vigorous diplomatic tradition. And at the same time, Brazil feels threatened. You know, there's, a, there's a mood in the air that, that, that people are coming for us. And I always wondered about this, and you see it really uh, explicitly in a lot of the monumental architecture of the 19th century, which I found really fascinating, which portrays not foreign invaders, but it actually uh, portrays domestic invaders who are Mm -hmm. a series of of the the explorers. They're not the Portuguese explorers. You very rarely see them. You might see Pedro Alves Cabral every once in a while, although I'm sure he's been cancelled by this point. And, um, but you see the people who were from Brazil and who went inland and colonized Brazil. And I was really fascinated by the sexual uh, implications of this because I come from a literary background and I've written a biography of Clarice Lispector and I've really, you know, Brazilian literature is something I've spent many years of my life being fascinated by. Uh, There's a famous 19th century novel called Iracema by José de Alencar, which is this origin myth of Brazil in which basically a hunky Portuguese guy sleeps with this sexy Indian lady and along comes Brazil, half Indian, half Portuguese. This later gets updated to a third African. But the sexuality of these statues was really kind of comical if you've ever seen these statues. There's these these guys look like a fireman calendar or something. I mean, it's it's this kind of exaggerated, almost pornographic masculinity. Um, but what were they actually doing? I mean, they were invading Brazil. They were going from Sao Paulo, for example, up to Minas Gerais or Goiás or Mato Grosso, And they were um, killing and enslaving native Brazilians and also other people, including Spanish people and... Um, and and escaped Africans. Uh, And I was really interested in this idea of how a country invades itself. And once I thought of that, you open a newspaper in Brazil every day and this word invasion comes up a lot. It it comes up in terms of invading slums and invading poor neighborhoods. Um, It comes up a lot in in connection to the Amazon. Um, It's a word that, that, and you just see this country Almost with a a death wish, really, you know. And and then the the architecture really reflects that. It's 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 a it's Brazilians looking at their own country as, as something to be conquered.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you note in the in the book that you know you give examples of some of these invasions. So you know, the police invade a favela uh, favela dwellers invade the beach. Uh, landless peasants invade the land. Landowners invade indigenous territories. Uh, developers. Uh, invade old parts of the city to tear down old buildings and build new ones in their place and so on. And there's this constant process of, um, I mean, a very modern process, but but a very destructive, uh, specifically destructive one in, in the sense of um, not really valorizing what has been built up in a constant churn. Um, but, how, you know, I, I think probably for American listeners, they'll think, well, you know, that sounds similar to us. Uh, we also had an invasion of, uh, you know, invasion westwards. And um, But you distinguish Brazil's relation to invasion to the US one, Um, you know, that for the US, it was more of an invasion from the outside, which uh, kind of uh, influenced the American psyche. So maybe you can can explain that, because in the book, you you note how, um, as an American, you're, you're, you know, you want to avoid a sort of yourself having a sort of imperialistic uh, approach to Brazil.
0: Yeah. This is a real problem with Americans who come to Latin America in general. And it's something that I think that is natural because of course we do have a history with Latin America. We don't in fact have a history with Brazil in that way. Um, we don't have that history with Argentina, you know, I mean, there have certainly been moments, particularly with the coup of 1964, but, um, but it's not like looking at it from Mexico or from Cuba or from Central America. It's a very different story. Mm. And, um, So you're very careful, and I think people get to be over careful. A lot of Americans come to Brazil and they don't really, um, they buy into this sort of poor me idea that a lot of Latin Americans have about their own countries. Sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not true. In fact, in Brazil, Brazilians manage to kill more of each other than in most real wars with foreign countries. So, um, you know, when I was doing my last book about Susan Sontag, the total... Um, number of people killed in the Bosnian-Yugoslavian War, which was a horrible, horrible war that lasted forever. You know, it lasted for like six years and it was just, had concentration camps and it was this absolutely appalling thing. It was something about, it was like 200,000 people died in that war. Now, if you know Brazil, you know that um, roughly 50 to 70,000 people die every year in Violence, uh, just intra-Brazilian violence, whether it's with the police or whether it's it's on, uh, you know, in, in rural areas. Um, so I thought that the metaphor of war and of invasion wasn't actually inappropriate. Um, if you compare it to a place like Yugoslavia, um, Brazil actually comes out behind. And I think that that's a real, that's something that Brazilians live with in a way that it's very, it's very pervasive. You know, I mean, the fear Mm. in Brazil, the fear of going to the wrong street, the fear of going to the party and not being sure if it's going to be too late by the time you get back and you're going to have to drive through some other area or whatever. That's something that, you know, if you, you know, you're Brazilian, so I don't need to explain this to you, but to people who are listening, that is a kind of calculus that Brazilians make dozens of times a day. And, um, but it's, so it's, it's a very, I think the comparison to, I used to study comparative literature and I never could understand what comparative literature meant. I still don't really know what it means. It means you read a book in Portuguese, you read a book in German and you compare, you know, some theme. I mean, it's a very weird thing. If anybody wants to explain to me what it really is, I would appreciate it. But um, I think you know comparison is very important when you're trying to understand social and historical processes, and the other countries to compare Brazil with are not um, necessarily other Latin American countries. I mean, this is where I think you're right. That Brazil is part of Latin America, and it's also so huge that it actually, you know, I think it should be compared with the big settler colonial countries. Um, like either, Argentina. It, either looks,
1: it either looks inward, I mean, it can be quite insular in that regard, or it looks outwards, not to its neighbors uh, in the rest of South America, but maybe uh, traditionally to maybe to France, uh, or more recently to the US. So yeah, I think that dynamics... Well, are- I
0: mean, I think you should compare Brazil to the big countries that are... Because bigness is really important mentally, I think, um, you know... Brazil is much more like the United States or like South Africa or like Argentina than it is like um, Bolivia. Um, I mean, there's a certain resemblance in certain ways to other Latin Americans, but um, Brazil becomes very interesting when seen um, in that sense. And in that book, I compare that architecture also to places like Johannesburg and Pretoria and Washington. and. Um, Buenos Aires, where you see the same kind of these monuments to conquest.
2: Um, Benjamin, G- George here, just a, a question, I guess, maybe on a s- possibly slightly more positive aspect of Brazilian culture. Um, And this is the modernist tradition. Um, so Brazil has a great modernist tradition, and we saw uh, some of it when we visited earlier this year. But you touched on architecture a bit there. You're critical of the construction of Could you tell us why a little bit because for anybody who's visited or even just seen photos? It looks really impressive enchanting a kind of um, an attempt to stake out a new future And so, you know, shouldn't we be supportive of it for that for that reason?
0: Did you visit Brasilia?
2: No, but I've seen the the photos and uh, Alex has communicated some some of the uh, uh, partial enthusiasm for this it I mean it's it does seem on video and uh in documentaries like a, a quite a strange place, but certainly having a pretty impressive idea behind it.
0: Well, it's interesting that you haven't been there. This is something that um Susan Sontag writes a lot about about the difference between the image and the reality. Um, but Azilia is extremely attractive photographically. Um, it really is impressive. It's kind of wacky, it's really modernistic in that way that um things are modernistic that are really trying hard to be modernistic. Um, when you go there, it's a very different experience and I, you can like the buildings, which are really all on one axis. I mean, it's, it's a bit more than a street, but it's less than a neighborhood. It's really just one um, monumental line up of things. And then coming out from that on either side, like the wings of an airplane, are the residential areas, which is you know, I mean, it was built in the '60s and '50s. It kind of looks like it was built in the '60s and '50s. It's not an uncomfortable place, you know. I mean, people don't mind living there actually, for the most part. And but if you're, what's if fascinating you're to
1: live in the. In, in the Pleno Piloto, in the, in the kind of the main center, the original plan of the place, then yeah, sure, it's, uh, it's fine.
0: Well, this is where I'm going with this. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that is the gentrified center of town where the ambassadors live and where the minister yeah. lives and where all the sort of well-to-do white people live. And then there's this quote-unquote green belt around it, and then which is quite big. I mean, it takes 30, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to drive through it. It's just... Plants. And there's nothing there. And then all of a sudden you come to Brazil. You come to the non-gentrified actual place that feels like you're back in Brazil. And one of the things that feels like you're being back in Brazil is that um, there's an incredible amount of class discrimination that is built into the actual body of this thing, you know, because the the, the people who live in the center. Are automatically protected from these other people who happen to be the people who do all the work. So all the people they cram into these little buses, and it's also though, I mean, you get very bored. Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but Asilia is really boring after a couple of days. I mean, yeah, it's I mean, really. I,
1: I, I've never lived there, but uh, you know, I've spent a bit of time there, and you know, I have plenty of friends who have lived there, and yeah, it, it does seem to, and it's and it's a very. I mean it's a bizarre place because it's a really car-oriented city um in in a way in which lots of other Brazilian cities at least more towards the center of them aren't so yeah it, it, it it's it's definitely it's definitely a strange place i mean i would encourage any listener to who you know is curious definitely go visit it i mean it's worth you know 3 days there absolutely
0: i think it's worth 3 days but the thing about it is that it is it's it's a cool place i mean it's a wacky idea and there is a lot of architecture that you won't have seen other places. The problem is, Brasilia is is explicitly described from the very beginning. And actually there's a weird vision that happens in the late 19th century. And then there's all these people that think that Brazil is too much concentrated on the coast and it needs to actually take possession, which is another sort of sexual metaphor um, of the interior, which you understand because but as you know Brazil has a lot of areas that could be developed and exploited. You can understand that if you're a politician, uh, especially hundred years ago that you would wanna make, you know, really develop the interior. Um, but the ideology is explicitly about leaving Brazil, leaving Brazil behind. They feel that particularly Rio de Janeiro is decadent. It is um, a place where people are a little too comfortable. There are too many whore houses. There's too many beaches. We need to reinvent Brazil. So what you see actually, is that Brasilia becomes this affirmation of the nation, but at the same time, it's also explicitly wanting to leave the nation, which is um, and has always been basically on the coast. And the reason it's basically on the coast, if you've ever read Brazilian literature, is that um, most of the interior of Brazil is extremely inhospitable. Um, it's either too hot or it's, uh, it doesn't rain enough, or, or you know, there's all these reasons. That are that are natural geographical reasons why Brazilians have mainly lived near near the water.
2: I think it's a, a great encapsulation you know part of the representation of the nation but trying to trying to somehow escape it as well at the same time. So yeah I think um, definitely have to visit it next time we come to come to Brazil and get beyond just the uh, just the image
0: Yeah I mean it's fun to see actually it is because it's such a visually, Appealing thing, and it's actually quite simple. Um, in the way that I think good postcard architecture is really simple, it's you recognize it immediately, and then you go there and you think, "Wow, that's really cool." And then after three hours, you're like, "Okay, like, where's the? I don't know. Like, where's the real city?"
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel that way often in North American cities, I mean, other other than maybe San Francisco or New York, that you kind of go, where am I meant to be? Um, where's the center of this place? Um, and that can be kind of off-putting. But I mean, to, to move on from Brasilia specifically, uh, I mean, this, you know, you've already detailed the kind of uh, the pattern of Brazilian development, which is really kind of cut and run. You know, you build something up, it falls into decadence because there's a lack of investment, a lack of uh, kind of respect for the public sphere, Um and so it's just left to rot and then kind of thrown away and you move on, move on to new to pastures and new. Um, fast forwarding to today, you get um, maybe a sort of slightly different attitude or rather uh, maybe a, a new inflection to that old attitude of cutting and running. Um, so you discuss it in the book, the. The Museu do Amanhã, which was built in in Rio, um, with the Museum of Tomorrow, which was designed by Santiago Calatrava, and uh, you know people at the time said it looked like a UFO, and it, indeed it looks like it have could have it could have landed from outer space into any place in the world. You know it, it has this element of just not really fitting its surroundings. I mean, you can imagine many other, um, you know, very con- contemporary modern art museums which have been put into place, which, uh, you know, which are which feature sort of iconic architecture, which, uh, again, doesn't really dialogue with uh, the place that it's in. Um, commenting on that museum, you write that it speaks of a kind of a contemporary Brazilian dream of being Miami or Dubai. Um, what do you see as problematic in that attitude? Um you know, it's just part of Brazil always wanting to be something else, wanting to be someone else.
0: Yeah. I think this is one of the things that's very important to understand that you get out of the literature and out of the experience of living in Brazil is the deep shame that Brazilians feel about their own country, which exists alongside a very ferocious nationalism. So often what looks like nationalism actually is, is defensive and actually, um, Brazil has 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 a long tradition of this, the Museu do Amanhã, which is a fascinating building. Um, I mean, it's fascinating as a sociological thing because of where it is. I mean, it's actually at the, it's in a square in downtown Rio, which is the old square where the boats came in. So it's very historic in that sense. Um, so a lot of the boats that came to Rio, as I'm sure I don't have to explain to people, had African captives on board, actually more than any other port in the world. Um, Africans were enslaved and brought to Rio de Janeiro um, and literally really close when they were excavating this thing, which they did for the Olympics, um, the which is a very, it's one of the sort of Auschwitzes of the world, um, which is where the slaves were unloaded. Uh, they discovered that it's basically made out of human bones, that whole area. Uh, Cause these people came off and they either died right on the spot or they were already dead and they just threw them over into, you know, into the gutter, basically. Um, on the other side of the square is something called Avenida Rio Branco, which is um, used to be called Avenida Central, which was built in the early 19th century on a Parisian model. And in order to build this avenue, which was the absolute top, when Rio was the capital of elegance, culture, it was where all the fashion houses were, where all the bookstores were, where all the pretty people walked up and down the street, often wearing three-piece suits, which is kind of funny when you see the old pictures. Um, and in order to build the Avenida Rio Branco, um, an in- incredibly massive part of the old city of Rio was destroyed, um, including even people who were in their houses when the demolition crews came. It's fascinating to see this geography unfold because actually only maybe a five-minute walk from there from the Museo D'Omoyen. You have, for example, the house where Machado de Assis was born, who was the greatest of Brazilian writers traditionally, Um, and he was born in a poor family in the 1830s, and it's all still there, actually. Um, But the money, and it was hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions to build all that stuff. Um, If you know how brazilian libraries are funded how brazilian museums are funded how brazilian schools and hospitals and all these things are funded and you you think like why would they do this when they have all these other pressing needs well i mean it's a big country so it can afford to build a new building it's not really that but it's about um the name of the museum which we haven't translated it's the museum of tomorrow you know so brazil is always pursuing tomorrow in a way that literally implies getting rid of yesterday. So, you know, you have this history of these slaves and this, this, this quite shocking place. Um, and it, there's an attitude of let's move forward, which is a very human attitude. It's very understandable, but it's also um, often not reckoning with the past and, and the past doesn't go away in Brazil or anywhere else.
1: No, absolutely. And I think, you know, that uh, that sort of attitude um, has been again, I kind of manifest in a certain way um, as to look now, I mean, now the, the way it manifests itself is in looking to the United States, and you can almost see this in different parts of Rio, you know, the kind of the old elite bits of, of Rio, all the names of the buildings are all uh, French names. Um, and whereas if you go to more kind of new area, um, also wealthy, um, but with new kind of more glass and steel skyscrapers, uh, the names are all kind of Miami or something in Florida or something in the United States. Um, and I, I guess... You know, that's the current um, incarnation of, of Brazil's uh, idea, uh, desire to kind of leave its own self behind. Um, but on the other hand, I, th- I still think that Brazilian modernism maybe still has a, a certain edge, or at least it persists in a way uh, that it doesn't um, in the United States, for example. Um, I, I say this both because mo- the modernist project of mass inclusion is still very incomplete in Brazil, but also because there's still a degree of tradition to face off against. Uh, again, in a way that more, let's say, postmodernized societies don't. Um, do you buy this argument? I mean, this is something that I often tussle with. So I'm, I'm curious what you think about it.
0: Um, well, I would say, just to return to Brasilia, you said that there's an ideal of mass inclusion. In fact, what you see in the modernist city of Brasilia is an idea of mass exclusion. So we're going to build a Brazil that actually keeps all the dirty people far, far away where we don't have to see them and we can just kind of live in this dream Brazil where we have actually no past. Um, I think that modernism in Brazil is a fascinating subject because it's actually very persistent as an idea. I mean, the first modernist building built in Brazil traditionally thought of is um, the Ministry of Education in Rio, which is from 1936. And if you go back a little more to 1922, which is the traditional year that modernism begins in visual art and literature, um, you see this absolute um, thirst to be modern and to be national. So, you know, you said actually between the French names and the Miami names, what you also have, which is very funny in those kind of buildings are Indian names. So you have these very posh buildings um, in areas like Botafogo and Flamengo, or the beginning of Copacabana, where it's um, those beautiful old uh, buildings from the 20s and 30s are, um, and they they have names taken out of the vocabulary of, of 19th century indigenous nationalism. So I think that when you look at modernism, what the main characteristic I see in Brazil is that it's a very um, it's a very persistent trope. You know, this is 1922 is almost 100 years ago. And I think that Brazil is still reckoning with that and still trying to balance um, its traditions with its vision of itself. Um, I think it's really time to, you know, intellectually, I've written a lot about this and I'm writing about it now. In my own generation of Americans, I think that there has not been an intellectual answer to, you know, since the 60s, we're still fighting these fights that, you know, like about Black Lives Matter and stuff. I mean, everybody basically agreed that Black Lives Matter in the 50s and 60s. You know, we haven't, we're feeling like our country is being flushed down the toilet, which in fact it is. Um, but we're actually still using a vocabulary that is borrowed from our parents' generation. And I find that really interesting. And in the Brazilian case, I think that it's fine to look at these modernist buildings and this architecture and these architects, particularly, I write about Oscar Niemeyer in that book. Um, but, you know, Oscar Niemeyer was a quite dark figure if you read his, his, um, his writing and you read the interviews with him. The problem is that a lot of sacred cows, um, they don't really get subjected to the same kind of rigorous criticism For you know, what does this mean? Um, did modernism actually create an inclusive society, or did it actually exacerbate the problems by not engaging with a society that was already there? Mm. Um, yeah, you know, I think that anyone who knows Brazil knows that the fun part of Brazil, the the the, the warm part of Brazil, the the really beautiful part of Brazil, it's very rarely um, found in the upper reaches. Um, that's not hundred percent true, but it's um, Brazil has an incredible popular culture that um, very few countries can, can boast
1: I do want to park Brazil uh, for the moment because I, I would be nice to move on and talk about Sontag as well as you know as a way of discussing uh, the move from modernity to post-modernity, which um, has already is already a theme that has come up, has cropped up in in these discussions about Brazil.
3: Yeah. So hi, Benjamin. This is Philip from Canterbury. Um, uh-huh. I listening to you talk about, and I this is something which I think um, I you know it's something which is uh, we've touched upon at various points um, over the course of um, uh, in various kind of discussions we've had on here. But I think it's spot on when you say that um, we're still kind of grappling with a discourse inherited from an earlier generation as a way of understanding our collective problems of our um, social and political life. And I suppose, um, listening to you just now, I suppose I wanted to ask... Um, to kind of bend that to a question about um, what prompted you to write the book about Sontag, because reading your book, I was very, I mean, I don't know if this was your intent, if this was your intention, but um, I was, I got a feeling uh, it's, uh, it's she's someone from a different generation Um, and uh, that, you know, her kind of views and her, um, and what she stood for and the kind of world, even more importantly, the kind of world that she inhabited, the kind of intellectual and political world, um, and particularly that world of New York, um, as far as I can tell, you know, I mean, I obviously don't live in New York, but it seems to me to be gone. And it's now kind of a Manhattan, you know, of um, entirely kind of dominated by, um, uh, I suppose, the banks and the world of the kind of um, the old New York kind of intellectual world has effectively been eclipsed. So. I suppose it's a roundabout way of um, of asking you what prompted you to write the book and why do you think that we need to know about Sontag now? What do we need to know about Sontag now?
0: Well, that's absolutely right. I think that Sontag was always seen as a figure who was very contemporary. I mean, she was born in 1933. So, you know, we're talking about Brazil in the 30s or the 20s. Um, she comes from a very different world and... I think that people, because she looks the way she looks and because she was photographed in a certain way, if you look at the cover of my book, you know, she looks like somebody who could be walking down the street right now. Um, actually the photograph on the cover of my book is from 1977 or something. And so that's you know, almost 50 years ago. And um, I think that one of the reasons that I loved reading and, and, and thinking about Sontag is that you see really how much has changed. And you see that grandmother's um, clothing, you know, or her silverware, whatever you wanna call it, um, is really talking about a very different world than the world that we inhabit. And at the same time, um, I think one of the things that we've lost, and I think this does apply to Brazil as well, um, it certainly applies to the UK, and it certainly applies to the US. Um, I hope not everywhere, but definitely those three. Um, has been a loss of the sense of tradition in the desire to become modern. And I think that um, there was a real, it's something that you understand, you know, if you've ever been to Asia, you see the desire to just get rid of all the old crap and you start to actually understand it after a while because you think, oh, you know, okay, enough already, um, enough Confucius or whatever, my strategy let's let's move on. Um, But in fact, losing that sense of our tradition is a way to lose whatever would be really useful about being modern, because what would be modern is to look at the old questions and take them in a different direction. Because in fact, societies, I mean, this is true of, well, pretty much everywhere. Um, Societies are like people, you know, they usually have similar issues. Um, I mean, like I'm speaking to you from the Netherlands, Dutch society, as much as it's changed over the past 200 years or 100 years or 50 years, um, it's almost like a full grown animal. You know, It's different from France. It's different from Germany. Um, and I think that Sontag really shows you what to be interested in and how to look at it and how to understand things in a way that, I don't think there's another figure, certainly from contemporary quote unquote life, um, that can give you as much a sense of how a modern thinker can engage with the past and then help create the future. That's what I've always wanted to represent uh, in the writing that I've done um, about how those conversations advance.
1: I I think one way of maybe talking a little bit more deeply about Sontag uh, would be to refer to, I think, what is most likely uh, the bit of Sontag that most people have read, which is her notes on camp, um and I think one way to get uh, to discussing this uh, is to reflect on the fact that uh, Donald Trump is America's first camp president um I'm not sure if you'd if you'd agree with that um it's actually interesting that Sontag calls uh, Charles de Gaulle quite camp um so that that kind of may, maybe in many ways you know Trump was preceded by other antecedents uh, you know Berlusconi for one um I mean do you do you see uh, anything in that in um Trump as Trump as camp, um, and in some way as as saying something about uh, the American public sphere today.
0: Uh, I think that Trump Trump has a campy side to him, but I think that he's actually not the first camp president. I would give that honor to Ronald Reagan because a lot of what camp is about is uh, is performance. You know, Reagan was a completely vacuous. Person, but he was an excellent actor and he was really good at all the ceremonious elements of, of the American presidency, which Trump is not. You know, Trump has no sense of decorum and this bothers people who think that that sort of thing is important because they can write a column about it and get really worked up about it mm. instead of actually um, wondering why Donald Trump is president. Why, um, for example, why that is the fault of the Democratic Party as much as it is of anyone else. Um, I think that the, 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 camp ideal, if you want to call it that way. And one of the reasons that Sontag was so uncomfortable with it is that there is a severance between the reality of what what somebody is saying and, and the way that it's being said. So Reagan, in fact, um, when we're talking about a lot of these things in relation to Brazil, such as, um, creating this facade of modernity over, literally over the bones of of, of dead people. Um, Actually quite a lot of Reagan's policies, they weren't probably that blatant, but that is really what they were. I mean, they were about enriching the rich and impoverishing uh, the poor. And um, he managed to pull it off with a real flair that I think people have forgotten. Um, And, you know, Trump is kind of this, He's kind of the placenta of Reagan, if I may put it that way.
2: Is that an original uh, coinage? Yeah, I um, just thought of it. <laughs> so, just, just I guess a, a question on on Reagan specifically. I've heard yeah. a, a story. I don't know if this is actually true or not. That a Reagan speech was played to two groups of um, patients who'd had who suffered head injuries. One group who were unable to understand verbal communication and the other who found who found it impossible to understand non-verbal communication. And they thought that he was basically talking about completely different things or that the message was completely different because the words were completely detached from the body language, from the, the method of presentation. So is this is this what is this an element of camp that it's basically a um, disconnect between style and substance?
0: Yes, I mean, first of all, that's an amazing story. I've never heard that, but I absolutely, I'm sure it's true. Sure am, it's true. Um, because actually, Reagan was—he could look like your grandfather, and he could look like this genial man in a ranch house in Southern California. Um, but in fact, the upshot of his policies was 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 quite brutal. And you know, if you look at someone like Margaret Thatcher, who was his closest international uh, partner. Um, She's not as good at it, you know. She's actually much more. Uh, you can kind of see it coming a little more, and some people wanted to. Reagan managed to be a very radical president without um, without ever having people really dislike him in a in a certain way. And so, camp really, you know, it's often associated with fashion. It's often associated with, you know, RuPaul and that kind of stuff. Um, in fact, camp is about the, um, I mean, in part, this is why it's such an interesting concept, but it's about, um, it's about the celebration of artifice over substance. So this is why Andy Warhol, for example, is the great camp artist, even though he, it turns out, was much cannier about this than, um, you know, he was aware of what he was doing. I think the real, Camp champion kind of does it by accident.
1: Mm, yeah, I mean that's yeah.
0: Trump yeah. to me. Trump actually really thinks he's a great leader, <laughs> um, supposedly.
1: I mean, I think that's you know one one aspect of, of camp as well is that it refers to sort of post satirical age that um, you know you had parody or satire, which both try to sort of unmask seriousness, and then you know, camp speaks for the age beyond that when when satire or parody no longer work. And I think that's something which very much applies to Trump and to the age of Trump, where things seem completely beyond parody. Absolutely.
0: And I think that, um, you know, camp was all about codes. So that's why coming back to what you said about um, about two people hearing the same speech or not hearing the same speech and getting completely different messages out of it. You know, camp comes out of gay culture. And so gay culture, especially at that time, couldn't really say what it meant. So there were all these ways to hint at things um, without actually saying them. And so it becomes something that is fun and hilarious to manipulate if you're doing it on purpose. But it can also be what, as far back as Plato, people were, you know, political theorists and, and theorists of language were concerned about, which was that... Um, that meaning becomes severed from language, and this becomes a real. This is a concern that always fascinates me. Um, certainly, like uh, the, the mystic thinkers, like Kierkegaard, Spector is a great example of that. Actually, um, they thought of their task in a certain way as being bringing meaning and 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 you know symbol and object back together. Um, you see that when you separate those, as Trump does, which is just lying, for example, um, Bolsonaro does the same thing, actually, and, and so does um, Modi in, in India. is very good at this, um, at just with a perfectly straight face, just lying and 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 doing it so blatantly that you can't even really. There's no point in, you know, if you say that green is red. Um, you can't really correct that. It's not a fact checking thing. it's it's a completely different political operation, and it's the basis of um,
1: of tyranny. yeah, no, indeed. Um, and I, I mean I, I that's it is something which I, I think we've tried to grapple with on on this podcast a number of times. um I, I did want to move on though to a question. Um, which maybe we'll end up kind of doubling back to the themes that we were just talking about. But uh, specifically that Sontag was a Freudian. Um, and in this broader theme that we're discussing of the transition from modernism to postmodernism, one way of thinking about that is uh, is to see it as a move from the rational ego uh, to the self um, and it's also a story of leaving behind Freudianism as of the 1970s. I mean, you have basically a century of Freud, and uh, and that kind of comes to an end around that period. Sontag herself kind of straddles that period. Um, so I, I wonder how you place Sontag in relation to Freudianism. Um, and maybe as a sort of addendum to that question, um, I think you know that Sontag claimed Freud hadn't uh, yeah, that Sontag had claimed Freud never envisaged a society or a civilization without repression. Um, but I guess one of the features of our contemporary world is that, you know, supposedly everything is permitted. This is the world um, after sexual liberation. Um, so how how would we use Sontag maybe to navigate these times?
0: Well, I mean, this is the idea, right, is that anything now is permitted. Um, people envision that basically as... Nobody cares if you're gay. You can fuck whoever you want and nobody's gonna really make a big deal about it. That's good, that's fine. Um, but that's really not what Freud is talking about. I mean, Freud is talking about oppression as a necessary uh, operation in order to allow people to walk down the street and get out of bed in the morning. Because you know, you can't, we all know, we can't do everything we want. You can't in fact fuck everybody you want. You can't in fact um, break laws Without uh, without consequence, you can't say everything that you might want to say. You have to check yourself. You're constantly doing that, and actually, people do it so automatically they don't even think of it as repression. They just think of it as politeness, or they think of it as like wearing pants in public, or they think of it as all these other things that you do without thinking you're doing them. Um, Sontag and Freud. I mean, this is such a rich subject for me. Um, first of all, you know, I. I, I I, I believe, as Sontag believed that she wrote the book Freud, the mind of the moralist that was published under her husband's name and that she mm. sort of handed over to him as um, kind of ransom when she was trying to get divorced from this very nutty individual um, in the late 1950s. But actually that book is so rich because she talks about the moral values of Freud. So yeah, you can't say everything you wanna say. We all know that, but then what should you say? You, know, you can't, you have to act and behave and live in a certain moral universe and what should that universe be? And there's quite a lot of that in Freud. Um, one of the real tragedies, I think, you know, we're talking about our relation to tradition. The Freudian tradition was lost really, um, I think starting in the 70s. I think people thought that that war had been won everybody thought that women should be equal to men and that that you you know gay people should be equal and have rights and and everybody kind of just decided they didn't care about it what replaced that kind of cosmology was consumerism so really as long as you can afford to be there um, nobody really cares if you're gay if you're at the bar Mm -hmm. you know and Sontag's essay of 1966, which is along with Notes on Camp, probably her most famous single essay, um, is called Against Interpretation. And I say in my book that actually Against Interpretation could be read as against Freud um, because what happens, and I'm always constantly boring people, telling them they should read Freud, A, and Marx, B, because actually people have very stereotypical ideas about what these thinkers are, Mm -hmm. but it's much, much broader than that um if you grew up in that world at all of thinking it is completely mind boggling i mean i'm looking at a can of pepsi right now now if i'm a marxist i can read this can of pepsi from here to eternity you know i can tell you that like child labor was exploited in sri lanka to make the dye that put the red circle on it and that like you know, I mean, you can, you can go on and on about the systems of production and the systems of capital and transportation and logistics that made this can of Pepsi land on my desk. Floyd is the same thing. I mean, you can really go deep into thinking that everything is something else. Um, it's exhausting. I mean, it, you know, people go crazy. You've talked to these people. I think we all went to college and, and experienced these people. It's, it's completely maddening. On the other hand, this kind of do your own thing postmodernism, where you don't really need to look at the causes or, or consider the, the motives of things gets really tiresome too, because um, I think it's really important for us, you know, this is I think what connects maybe Sontag with Brazilian architecture, which I hadn't really thought of before, but it's true, um, is the willingness to engage with tradition the willingness to take the world as it is and then try to understand it before you try to improve it. I think that the the, the hope that you can improve something comes from the hope that you can understand why things are the way they are.
2: Um, mm, I think that's a, a probably a good a good challenge today, maybe particularly in the context of what you might call a kind of postmodern retreat from understanding or maybe just a general um, preference. You could say cultural preference for image over analysis. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe just to dig into this into this point a little bit. Um, I think everybody, whether you studied some of this theory that you um, maybe alluded to, Uh, in college or or not has some sort of sense that there's definitely been particularly recently a um, a massive ramping up of the importance of of images in general in in society. Um, And of course, one of the things that Sontag was interested in was how we regard the suffering of others and what the um, effect of images of other people suffering is. Um, I guess the question is what's essentially what's your your take on this? Because I think the high point of humanitarian intervention and particularly maybe in the charity sector you had images of people suffering give give money you know save save the kids in africa that sort of thing it seems like that high high watermark is or that high high point has has passed um maybe quite quite a lot to 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 chew on there but have have we basically seen too many images so that we're now completely jaded and they don't have that much um effect on us
0: Well, this was Sontag's big fear. So in 1975, she publishes one of her great books. Um, For me, maybe her greatest book. I'm sorry, 1977. It's called On Photography. And it's about, she's extremely skeptical of photography. She actually really doesn't like photography. You feel that. And the reason she doesn't like it is that she says that seeing too many images is going to anesthetize people. If you've seen too many kids in Africa with big bellies and flies all around them, um, you can only take so much of that. And so by spreading these images around, you're going to make people just tune out and flip the channel. And that's, that's kind of her big fear uh, in the 70s. What's fascinating about Sontag, I mean, so many things are, but she's always arguing with herself and she's always coming back around and saying, however, on the other hand. And by the 90s, she gets involved via a very circuitous route, she ends up going to Sarajevo, which is the war that I alluded to at the beginning, um, the war that that killed so many people, Uh, racial violence of a kind that Europe thought it had seen the last of in 1945. And what she does, her girlfriend at the time is Annie Leibovitz, who is probably the most famous, most glamorous celebrity photographer in the world. And what she does is she brings Annie to Sarajevo and she shows her the suffering children and the suffering horrors of the hospital in Sarajevo and the, the, the just absolute shockingness. I'm, I'm actually going to Sarajevo soon so I'm quite excited to bring this book there. But um, once she shows, she shows that you can put that in Vanity Fair. So actually you have these historic number, uh, numbers, what's the word, uh, um, issues of Vanity Fair in which you have these starving children in Sarajevo next to Brad Pitt and Barbara Streisand. So it actually, Sontag loves that. She loves that you can use this kind of trashy celebrity vehicle in order to make people aware of what's happening. And show these housewives who are flipping through this at the beauty parlor um, what's happening. Because otherwise, you know, we live in the media environment that we live in, in which it's very hard for all these horrors to penetrate. You know, this week it's Belarus. Next week Trump's gonna tweet something and everybody's gonna forget about Belarus. You know, that's just how it is. So in fact, the Sontag's fascinated by publicity precisely for this reason. And first of all, she grows up in Hollywood, which is a, something people don't really know about her, but I think it's amazing and, and it explains a lot. She's very conscious of how images can make and break people. And I think that a lot of her life can be looked at through that lens, literally through the lens. And images have, you know, she dies in 2004. So the internet exists, but it hasn't really taken over the whole universe yet. Um, And I actually, one of the things I really enjoyed about writing this book, besides traveling and meeting all these people and, and, and getting to engage with this incredibly stimulating thinker, um, I realized that I was reading all this photography theory, but I'd never actually taken a picture. And so this friend of mine said, you should get on Instagram and you should try to make one good picture a day. Mm. And I thought, okay, sure. You know, why not? And this was when Instagram was kind of new. I don't even think I'd heard of it until he mentioned it. And so I started driving myself absolutely bonkers trying to make one good picture per day. And I realized just how hard it is. And, um, and Sontag talks a lot about the frame, you know, like what do you leave in the picture? What do you cut out of the picture? And all those issues when you've actually, you're like taking your phone out and like moving it around and like looking and trying to decide if you leave the bicycle in there or not, it becomes really real in a way that i think i i love doing that because i hadn't had that experience before
2: mm, i think it, it reminds me a bit of what ruskin said that you should learn to to draw not enable not in order to be able to draw but in order to be able to see because you only really see something if you have to make decisions about the way you represent it or what you have in and out of the frame
0: absolutely and and it reminds me of something um i studied old english in college and um which is You know, one of those very useful things that I learned in life. And I actually love things like that. Um, But I remember the professor saying that the world needs more amateurs. Like it doesn't actually matter if your Beowulf is perfect, nobody really cares. It doesn't make any difference. But the more poetry you read, the more languages you learn and and that kind of thing, the more, I mean, languages, whether they're foreign languages or languages like the language of photography or, or, or drawing, um, you know, the more you try to do it yourself, the more you have an appreciation for the people who are really good.
2: Yeah, and I guess that's something that is quite tricky to uh, tricky to do today because it's all of that cost of le- of essentially not doing it perfectly. that it's so easy to get a, a perfect Beowulf or high quality pictures. What's the you know it seems to be what's the point of um, doing it yourself?
0: Yeah, I think that that's the sort of side that makes us human, isn't it? And it's like trying and 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 failing. A lot of the stuff about Sontag, actually, some people criticize me for um, talking about the things that she didn't do as well, of which there are a lot. But actually, I didn't see that as criticism. I saw it as this incredibly brilliant mind engaging with all these different things. And nobody engages with as much as Sontag. Nobody goes as many places. Nobody knows as many people, nobody reads as many books or sees as many movies or goes to as many uh, plays or operas. Um, I think that that openness to trying and failing is really, uh, people are really scared, I think, now. I think people uh, feel very precarious and they feel very um, unwilling, in a sense, to risk failure. And it's not a failure. Like, if you don't know Beowulf by heart, I mean, seriously, that's just not the,
1: biggest problem in the world. <laughs> um, yeah, I. this discussion here kind of prompts me to, to think about the question of representation. I mean, you know, we've already discussed uh, Sontag's against interpretation. Um, and one thing that strikes me about the contemporary moment is this overweening literalism that you have today, um, which also, in a way, also relates to what we were discussing a little bit before about about analysis and about image over analysis. Um Basically, what I think we have today in a way is it's sort of representational correctness. Um, or to put it, you know, another way or maybe a more obvious way, political correctness in art and media and culture. Um, so, you know, I mean, just to take an example for just to kind of situate us and situate maybe the listener, um, in a, in a contemporary example, how I'm actually. (laughs) <laughs> it drives me to distraction just to repeat this. But, you know, I think there was this scandal a couple of weeks ago about, uh, you know, BoJack Horseman, the animated series, um, where uh, the voice actor for a, an, um, a woman of Vietnamese descent um was uh, there was a scandal around this because it turned out that she wasn't played by a woman of Vietnamese Vietnamese descent. Um, for only someone of that background could really understand that experience and so on. Again, this is a a cartoon. Um, so how how would we maybe use Sontag in in relation to that? Because I mean, I think she was. Um, yeah, I I don't I don't know how how do we end up going from I guess against interpretation um, which. I think had a lot of uh, currency to today um, where uh, we end up um, also kind of, we move even further beyond any sort of interpretation and want just a a very literal representation of things.
0: Uh, I don't think it's just the representation that we want. You know, you say this is a cartoon, this thing about the Vietnamese woman. I haven't even heard about that, but I mean, I'm totally unsurprised. This is something that is a real problem. I mean, this is something that people get attacked for all the time. Um, I mean, we all know of cases of people who have been absolutely pilloried for these little thought crimes, even if they're, you know, completely fake and made up. And this is, I think, this is what the left has accepted in place of actual political power. I think that the left is constantly in this circular firing squad, constantly denouncing everybody for being racist or classist or sexist or homophobic or whatever. Um, Meanwhile, I think that it's very important to point out, you know, it's interesting to be talking to a Brazilian about this because who is president? You know, Donald Trump and Bolsonaro are president. Modi is president. Um, Erdogan is president. Um, You know, Boris Johnson is there. All these you know, these people in Poland and Putin. Um, I think that the longer we insist on this kind of ridiculous, you know, people yelling at each other on Twitter, um, the farther we get from actually creating any social change. And I think that it's fascinating to think about this in terms of Sontag. Um, first of all, Sontag was an incredibly, incredibly controversial person. She loved a fight. She, she didn't always love a fight. Sometimes she got in over her head which is also kind of fascinating when that happens and about issues that we don't even remember were issues um, these days. But I think that you know some of the things in her personal life, um, she would have been absolutely destroyed for some of the things she said. Um, and there's a, I think there's a need for people to get things wrong in a way. Um, there's a need to let people evolve and to have debate. Um, what I see now in the cultural world is a real fear. I mean, people don't want to say anything. Um, you get these people all up in your Twitter account. And it's um, and, and it's very hard to defend yourself on social media. You know, that's one of the things that social media seems, it's a simulacrum of debate. But I think that a lot of the stuff that Sontag um, said and did at certain times, I mean, she... She would have never written another book. Her entire body of work would have just not existed. I'm convinced of it.
1: I mean, it it is quite grim. And one thing that we discussed uh, a little while ago on Twitter ourselves, I mean, was this the the globalization of, um, yeah, wokeness, I guess, for lack of a better term, you know, the cultural diffusion of American postmodernity and its um, its codes of, um, you know, culture of representation and so on. Um, and I wonder, you know, in light of that, how do you and, and in light of, you know, what I had written about, which we had discussed as well, the globalization of of Black Lives Matter protest and, and the interpretation and analysis of uh, any sorts of questions through imported American frames, which don't really dialogue with a specific national context, national history, national culture. Um Whether it's, you know, whether you think it's even possible to speak of kind of national cultures today um, or indeed, if you think of um, kind of artistic or cultural representations of national cultures, um, how possible that is. I mean, and, you know, when I say that, I don't obviously mean um, the representation of a culture as a sort of singular unit. You know, I obviously don't buy any of that sort of ideas, but, you know, to express uh, a nation's distinct contradictions, um, you know, of course, that, that doesn't ignore universals, but that a country might will have specific inflections, particular inflections of universal tendencies and will have its own contradictions to tussle with. Um, and whether, you know, we're able, I guess, in, in today's times, you know, whether we whether we're talking about Brazil or whether we're talking about Britain or Holland or wherever else, um, now able to have those discussions um, without, yeah, without importing American frames.
0: I think it's really important. I think that nation states or whatever you want to call them, specific languages, specific cultures and political cultures and media cultures, they are their own thing. And the amount, I mean, I've lived in Holland for many years and I've seen how the Dutch who speak perfect English and who feel themselves in a sense to be part of the Anglo-American continuum or culture in a lot of ways, they don't understand the United States. They really don't. And they think they do. And it drives me insane. Every American in in Europe will tell you this. Um, They're always explaining why you should get rid of the Electoral College or what's wrong with the Second Amendment or whatever. And you think, okay, yeah. Like, first of all, this is what I get getting back to my coming down to Brazil and writing about Brazil and writing for Brazilians. And I write in Portuguese as well. I'm not trying to mansplain Brazil to Brazilians. You know, if you tell Brazil... Brazilians, that they have um, a problem with social inequality, that's not a revelation to any Brazilian. So they don't really need the guy from Cincinnati or you know Denver to come down and inform them of that. On the other hand, um, the thing about American culture that always fascinates me is that as much as people define themselves against it, they also define themselves in relation to it in a positive way. And so something like Black Lives Matter comes along, and you can look at a country with black people like, like France, you know, we've had it there, Britain or, or, or Brazil. Um, And they think, Oh, like we've got black people too. And we have problems with the police and we have racism. So we're going to jump on board with this thing. And losing the national context is really dangerous because actually it's a way of not grappling with your own problems. I mean, if you, um, George Floyd, definitely gets killed in Rio too, but it's a very different context and it's a different political context and it's a different way that you should respond to that in order to really create change instead of just performing wokeness, as you say. Um, And I think that it's something that we increasingly um, in the globalized world, what Americanization means, and this is something I really like to stress to foreigners, people who are, for me, foreigners, um, is that the United States in, in all of its contradictions, first of all, people know about it. You know, Americans are aware that we have a problem with gun violence and with racism. I mean, that's not news for anyone. Yeah. But also, um, also all of the things that the United States does to other countries, actually it does in a lot of ways worse to Americans. Um, we have an unbelievable tragedy in our country, which is that basically um, the middle class is is being destroyed. Um, There is an increasing pressure on um, people of my generation. I'm 43. Um, My parents' generation didn't have those things. You know, it was kind of okay. If you look at the statistics, a lot of the things about America that are now so outrageous, they've actually gotten a lot worse. Um, we, But we believe ourselves to be on this progressive trajectory when in fact, I think we're not. And I think that um, failing intellectually, this is something I keep coming back to, but, and I, I say it to Brazilians, but I say it to Americans even more forcefully because I feel like I have more, I, I know what I'm talking about more. We have not designed a new intellectual framework for looking at our country at all. You know, so when you're looking at Black Lives Matter, this comes in this tradition of, you know, it's not 1964 with Martin Luther King and JFK and Lyndon Johnson. I mean, it's not it's not the 70s with the Black Panthers. It's not the 80s all the things. You know, we're in a very very different time and yet when I see people you know talking about feminism, which luckily, you know, has has When I was in college, people would preface things by saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not a feminist, but dot, dot, dot. So luckily we've moved on from that. But there is a sense that we are kind of litigating around the borders and the problems in the world has shifted so dramatically. And it's one of the things that reading about Sontag really teaches you is that we, we haven't reinvented this. We're just kind of leaning into it. And so I think it's very important for us as well as for people all around the world to look at things anew and really try to figure out what is actually going on. That's what Sontag did. You know, she, she was aware of the tradition, um, but she was constantly trying to see, um, literally trying to see, um, you know, trying to see other people and see situations, but also trying to see how it had changed and what was different.
1: I think that's exceptionally well put. um and I think you're absolutely right that for all the seeming novelty of our world, there's very little creativity in devising new ways of actually looking at looking at and understanding the world. Um, so I think we'll actually leave that here. it's been It's been so great talking to you, Benjamin. Thank you.
0: yeah, thank you
1: so much for having me. That's our pleasure, our pleasure, absolutely.